We're moving in a new direction, moving forward and moving beyond smoking. We are Altria, and our companies are leading the way in moving adult smokers away from cigarettes by taking action to transition millions toward potentially less harmful choices as we move from being known as a tobacco company to being recognized as a tobacco harm reduction company. Altria is moving beyond smoking. Find out how at Altria.com. Gearheads know that some projects need so many parts, it feels like you need a whole storage unit just to store them. That's what eBay Motors' 122 million parts are for. Think of it as your virtual parts garage. They've always got the right fitment at the right prices. Use the eBay Motors app or visit ebaymotors.com. Let's ride. Hey everyone, this is the Almost World Podcast. Bringing to you mind-blowing interviews with guests from all over the world. So settle down, relax, and enjoy the show. Oh yeah, by the way, if you like the podcast, please support Elmo's World Podcast on Patreon. Your support is what helps the podcast improve more and more. Welcome to Elmo's World Podcast. This is Elmo. And I'm with an awesome friend, Daniel Wesley. Hey man, can you introduce yourself? Hi Elmo. Yeah, um, like you said, my name is Daniel Wesley. I am a pretty normal American Midwesterner. I'm a husband, I'm a father of five. Um, in my early 40s, and I live in the Kansas City area, and um, looking forward to talking to you. Uh, can you tell us uh, about like your background on what you believed before, and then what you believe now, and how you've arrived at So I became a Christian when I was 12. Um, I was raised in United Methodist Christian. Um, the simple answer of why I'm a Christian is because I was raised as one. Um, I think the second part of that question is why I am still a Christian. Um, you know, the answer to that for me is that I think the narrative itself is compelling. You know, the basic idea of, you know, we have these divine acts, you know, recorded in Scripture, you know, of God creating this peculiar people called Israel. You know, he shapes them and forms them over time. And out of these people comes this, you know, this amazing figure, Jesus of Nazareth, who goes on to kind of fulfill this narrative, um, you know, through the kind of divine giving of love and of, you know, self-giving, you know, dies on the cross, um, you know, comes back from the dead and kind of plants this seed of resurrection that will eventually encompass, you know, all of creation. You know, the kind of, basically what we would describe as the Apostles' Creed um, is, you know, I think that's a very, very compelling narrative. And then kind of underneath that is, you know, why I believe that, you know, I think there's sufficient evidence for the basic pillars of this narrative, you know, that there really was a person, Jesus of Nazareth, you know, you really know that he walked around Israel and taught Torah and, you know, went to Jerusalem, suffered, you know, under Pontius Pilate, as the creed says, you know, died and was buried again. I think there's more than sufficient evidence to affirm the basics of that narrative. So, in, but have you sort of, I guess, doubted being a Christian at one point actually decided to be an atheist, maybe when you're a teen or, or later in life? Um, you know, I've never actually reached a point where I felt like compelled to like abandon my faith entirely. Um, I have definitely gone through kind of various deconstruction periods in my life and I'm a faith, you know, as a very young age, you know, I was introduced to, you know, concepts just like young earth creationism, you know, and as time went by and I began to learn, you know, those pieces of the narrative, you know, I came to, came to doubt those. And, you know, that can be kind of troubling on its own. Um, but overall, I've never really felt compelled to, like, abandon this narrative, you know, this faith entirely. Let's talk about um, why you are a Christian right now. Is it because you believe that there is a God and therefore, like the, this, God had to have had contact with the human race, and Christianity is just, is sort of the narrative to that relationship with God and man. Yeah, um, you know, I think it goes back to kind of the great unanswered mystery of existence itself. You know, why is there something instead of nothing? You know, science over the last couple hundred years has done a great job of kind of 
focusing our understanding of how the world itself works so we can still understand, you know, the universe is billions of years old. It's larger than we could ever comprehend, you know, has all these amazing specific features. But I think science is still inadequate to kind of answer that question of why is there something instead of nothing. And so I think that's the underpinning of why I think, you know, belief in God is reasonable. And then Christianity specifically, um, again, I think it goes back to that narrative. You know, we've all been handed down over the series and the millennia these traditions of God working, again, you know, at the beginning, shaping this people, Israel, um, you know, and we see Jesus of Nazareth coming onto the scene and, you know, doing things he did, you know, imparting these traditions and scriptures upon the people that we've been handed in. I think it's a pretty... Yeah, but, but before we get there, though, yeah, uh, I would like to ask you why you think that God is the answer to the question of why is there something rather than nothing? Why can it be just a simulation, you know, or a multiverse? Um, you know, for starters, I think it is certainly possible that, you know, our universe is a type of a simulation or one piece of a multiverse. Uh, but I think as you kind of peel back the layers you know, if the further down you go, eventually there's going to be some sort of bedrock reality. And I think for me, it makes the most sense to think that bedrock reality is in some sense a person, you know, in some sense has moral qualities and character. You know, I don't think we can reduce, you know, moral aspects of reality and ethical aspects of reality, you know, these personable aspects of reality. I don't think we can reduce those to elements that are impersonal or immoral or not immoral, but amoral. So I think, it, you know, the bedrock of reality, I think we have to describe all the features of reality that we're familiar with. So what is this bedrock of reality that you're talking about? I, I'm, I still don't see the direct connection of like ha- uh, so, so having something rather than nothing and and the answer, the only answer to it being God, right? There could be other answers. Well, I think um, one particular answer that I know I've explored in the past is William and Craig's Kalam cosmological argument. Um, you know, I think knowing that the universe began in some sense in the finite past, um, knowing that, you know, as, I don't want to reiterate Gray's argument, but, you know, basically his conclusion that he reaches that this cause of the universe in the finite past, you know, had to be in some sense brought up by an agent, you know, something incredibly powerful, something incredibly larger, vaster than we can imagine, given the scope of the universe we live in. Um, so I think in all those sense, and even to Aquinas too, you know, the thing we call God. And so I think the intuitions as Aquinas and Craig and others like him would point out, we would say, hey, this is what we this is what we mean by God. Yeah. Okay. So you're sort of then appealing to the the the, the usual cl- classical theist arguments, right? That that um, the the Kalam cosmological and uh, the other stuff. But do you really think that you can logically, like, a hundred percent, arrive at God using these arguments? And do you think that the objections to these arguments don't are are invalid or don't really hold any weight? No, um, and kind of getting the basic sense and where human belief formation is in itself probabilistic. I don't think we can anybody can reasonably arrive at a hundred percent belief in anything. Uh, just be given, given again, the vastness of the universe, the vastness of knowledge available to us. Uh, I don't think anybody can land and say anything is true at 100%. Okay, so, so in your belief, right, in God, and you say that humans can't arrive at like a 100% uh, probability of belief. So you, do you, like how much probability do you believe that God exists? Do you believe him in like less than a hundred percent? Yeah, um, and I, I think everybody's threshold of what kind of gives them confidence is probably individual to that person. You know, I would if I was going to assign a probability, maybe I would throw eighty percent out there, uh, just because the things I experience in my own life that I attribute to a divine source. Um, you know, things I've seen in other people, things I've seen in my family members. You know, that things with other tend to be more personal. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I would assign a probability and, you know, someone else might assign a 1% probability and that's sufficient for them to believe. So I think some of that's going to come down to the individual. Well, I, I have a question then. 
in terms of your views on what the universe is. Are you familiar with like uh, materialism, idealism? Um, two degrees. I wouldn't claim to be experts on those specific subjects, but I've read enough where I'm familiar with them. Right. Um, so, you know, when it comes to the hard problem of consciousness, the, the you know, a lot of theists uh, argue for idealism and, and leading from from the hard problem consciousness do you think that this is the case uh, personally i lean, tend to lead more from a monist standpoint from an anthropological sense um, you know, i'm comfortable saying that humans are what we are physically and so i would identify a mind with the brain and you know even given that hard problem of consciousness i don't see a particular need to affirm idealism or sense dualism to answer that so you're a monist but okay so what what is your view on the nature of man then that does man have an immaterial part like a soul or something or spirit or is it just pure material as you say mind is and brain is the same thing um i would not affirm the traditional substance dualist form of soul people tend to mean um you know, I do kind of leave space for if there's some sort of informational sense, you know, you could possibly abstract that out. Uh, the, gen the general traditional Christian doctrine, you know, of substance dualism of an immaterial soul, I tend to be skeptical of. Um, again, and this is probabilistic sense, so I'm willing to admit I'm also wrong. Um, but just, you know, the insights that modern science have shown us about how the human brain works, I think, reveals that it's not necessary for human existence. And first to describe it as such. So you, basically what you're saying is that you, we don't really need sort of spiritual realm to be a Christian? Um, I, I don't think we need to posit some immaterial part of our being in order for us to say we can reliably connect with God or for us to reliably have worth. I know those are the typical arguments presented. You know, if, if all I am is just my body, um, you know, there's somehow there's some sense of worth that is lost. Um, I would disagree with that. Um, you know, the fact that we exist as we do as such, you know, demonstrates worth, that it demonstrates our capacity to reason. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's necessary to posit some immaterial sense of humanity in order to, you know, to kind of establish these ideas. Do you think that uh, humans will, you know, when we die, there's life after? Again, um, I, would I would assign that pretty, pretty low probability. Um, you know, have, having, having never have died, I couldn't tell you for sure. Um, you know, I think the testimonies of those are, that are reliable are few and far between. Um, you know, and if we're going to appeal to Scripture, I think Scripture is kind of a on that itself. Um, so I don't, I don't think we have a lot of necessary firm foundation that says it must be life after death. But what do you believe, bro? Do you think that there is an, a heaven and a hell? Well, I think the ultimate hope, you know, for Christians as part of this narrative we keep talking about um, lies in resurrection. So the idea, you know, whether it's a heaven or a hell, um, I think it all revolves around resurrection. And so in that sense, I would defer to someone like A.T. Wright. You know, the traditional idea that we leave our bodies and go up to spend eternity in heaven, uh, would, we would put that on its head and say, no, it's heaven that comes down to earth. So in kind of this resurrected state, uh, you know, that's the unity of heaven and earth will happen that way through it will still be in my physical reality a resurrected reality from what you just said did you just say that the resurrection of jesus christ uh, of christ is just like a, a prime example of of what will happen to all of the all of the human race in the future and that our heaven is actually here on this earth. Yes, um, you know, Scripture uses language like you know treating the resurrection of Jesus as a deposit or first fruits. So it's an example of what will eventually happen with all creation. And, you know, as Nicky Wright puts it, it's part of new creation of recreation. So we see the resurrection of Jesus as kind of God's stamp of saying, "Hey, this is what's going to happen. This project is now underway." And the goal is for heaven to come to earth and for the reunity of God and man. But uh, so are, where are we going to spend eternity is what I'm asking. A new heavens and a new earth. Which is like a, similar to this one, like a physical earth, right? Yes. All right. 
It's awesome. Okay. Uh, well, um, then we, I, you, you, I guess you sort of disagreed with the substance dualism, right? And, and, and you just hold the monist view of man's being. And I sort of see your point there. So, but when it comes to the concept of free will, you know, and yeah, and and as in the sort of predetermination or maybe even de- determinism, how 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 do you understand this these things? What's your views on that? That you know, that's something you know I've been wrestling with pretty heavily the last couple of years. Um, I think there is room. Um, for what we would traditionally call libertarianism, even within a modest framework. Um, you know, there's scientists and philosophers doing work that's really amazing, um, above pay grade for to fully understand. Uh, but I think, you know, we can have what we desire by free will, though, um, if we're going to look at it from a minimalist standpoint, even if, you know, even if we find something such as compatibilism to be the true and to be the case, um, I think that still gives us sufficiency for what we typically describe as free will. So, in, in other words, you know, free from some external force or factor. Um, so, I'm comfortable uh, personally, you know, saying compatibilism is true. It, it even some sort of monist libertarianism is true. I think both are feasible. You know, I would say both are metaphysically possible. Yeah, I guess so. It's true. Both would be metaphysically possible. Uh, but I, I guess we just can't really know how it will actually work, right? But do you suppose uh, like a model on how your compatibilism works? Uh, interesting that you bring that up because there's actually a book I've been reading very recently on this um, from a man named Bob Doyle. Um, it's a book called, if you will, The Scandal in Philosophy, uh, where he kind of posits different models of, you know, that satisfies what people would either call, you know, indeterminism or determinism or libertarianism or compatibilism. Um, so I think there's multiple models that are out there that are you know feasible for people to kind of latch onto. Um, I think ultimately though, the answer is going to be brought by you know neuroscience, neurobiology, because you, know, you know in this monist framework, you know the brain is the mind. I think we're going to find the answer by looking and dissecting and really getting down to the bare levels of how the brain works. Uh, you know, I, I it seems to me that the when it comes to theology, I, I don't really understand how mo- the monist view works in, ter- in terms of salvation and the atonement. Can you talk about that? Sure. So, you know, as we've kind of said before, you know, the ultimate goal of salvation, or, you know, we would call it the redemptive narrative of Scripture, is reconciliation between God and man. So in that most basic terms, it really doesn't matter what man is made of or if he's tripartite or bipartite or monist, you know, if the goal is reconciliation, then we reconcile with whatever we are and with whatever God is. So in that sense, we, I don't think we need to answer the question too closely to understand that it's true. Um, and again, that's one of those situations where people can disagree about their anthropology, but we all agree on this same basic narrative. I, I guess, but, you know, there are so many di- differences in in how the intricacies of the atonement works for many people, right? Many believe religions and denominations. So can you t- tell me, like, your views on who Jesus Christ is? Um, and I would affirm the, the basic Christian creed on that, that Jesus you know, is uh, the Son of God, the second person of a triune being um, who, you know, came to earth incarnated as a man, um, who is, you know, we would, uh, theoanthropos believe is the term that we say God is, or Jesus is 100% God, 100% man, um, you know, who kind of becomes this bridge intermediary that recognizes God. All right. So here's the thing, though. When it comes to, you know, the divine hypostasis, you're right, like Christ being fully God, fully man. How how do you reconcile, like, Jesus, Jesus having both, uh, be, being both God and man? Is it, because if you're holding, like, a monist view, then doesn't it sort of, propose like a, a real problem to that um you know I would, in simplest terms you know the divine nature is the divine nature and the human nature is the human nature so the hypostasis is the union of those two natures 
that doesn't really require us to understand fully what either nature is. Um, you know, we can say humans are tripartite or bipartite bonus, but whatever that is, that essence, that type of being is what is unified then with the divine nature. So I personally don't see that as an issue regardless of how you hold your anthropology. But okay, so but here's the thing, right? When you, when you, when we say like a person or, you know, what does it mean to be fully uh, this nature? For example, to be fully man, then some would, uh, that's why there are tripartite, right? Like uh, having a soul, a spirit, and there's this physical flesh. But, uh, and so the, how, I'm really. Can you talk about this more? I'm. I'm really interested. Yeah. Um. Well, for starters, for one thing, I think it's okay for people having this type of conversations to say I don't know, or it's complicated, or it's above my pay grade. Um. You know, and throughout you know the centuries and the millennia of the church, these questions have been wrestled with. Um. So I think even with modern insights, you know, these are things we're going to be wrestling with for a long time. Uh, yeah, but the, the essence of it, you know, we just say and the theoanthropos is the marriage of, you know, the divine nature with the human nature, uh, but we don't confuse the two, we don't mix the two. Um, so I think that's, we can just say it in those very broad terms and be satisfied theologically. You know, we don't have to peel apart, even when we certainly can't peel apart the divine nature. And as difficult as it is finding it to try to peel apart the human nature, um, I don't think it's necessary to do that in order to just say, and you know, this would be a theological statement, you know, not a scientific statement, that the union of these two natures, without having to say specifically what these natures are. But then this is sort the, there lies sort of like a scientific, you know, scientific reductionism when it comes to this, right? Because if if you know, if let's say that if Jesus is both, you know, has is full is both like fully man and fully God, then in a way, Jesus's uh, nature could actually be, uh, you know, understood in, in in purely physical in a purely physical sense because he in in how you understand in a monist being like mind and brain is you know is the same thing right correct yeah and so i mean and i don't have any theological issues with saying that we could understand jesus's human nature in that sense uh, again because you know, we, need, we just be careful that we don't kind of try to over mix the two um so we just say whatever the human nature happens to be um, you know, that's how Jesus functioned and, you know, lived, you know, even if we appeal to scripture and, you know, see several times in the gospels of, you know, Jesus growing in wisdom and in knowledge. So I think in this sense of a human nature, it develops. And, you know, given that we've understand from a scientific standpoint of how the mind and the brain develop, um, you know, from childhood on, I say, you know, Jesus's existence as a human fully fits that. So if we can understand our nature, I think we can understand human nature in that sense. So here's here's a big question, and and it's sort of like uh, going backwards. Um, you know, you argued about the, the you know, like uh, Kalam and the other theist arguments to, as to why you believe in God, right? And it, your belief is sort of probabilistic, and and you even mentioned that it's sort of eighty percent your belief in God. So my question is like. What led you from being being a theist to actually believing that Christianity is the right religion? Again, it goes back to you know how I was raised, um, going through this information process, you know, in the United Methodist Church. Uh, we you know we do some pretty in studies of the Gospels, and so you know we're presented with this picture of Jesus, and I can remember vividly reading through John's Gospel. And, you know, John has a very high and a very theological view of Jesus, and you know, even at that young age, I could, you know, find myself very impelled by that narrative and that person and knowing, you know, in that Gospel of John is the invitation to, to join along with that. So for me, it, you know, in almost in an intelligence, it just made sense and it clicked. And, you know, when it came time to publicly confess that faith, you know, I jumped in with both feet wholeheartedly. But also, like, um, what would you say that you could, like, defend why you chose Christianity, maybe? Like, for example, you know, relying on the historical accuracy of of the of the Gospels and, and the Bible. Would you say that? Yeah, you know, if we were going to kind of discuss, you know, um, from a, an apologetic sense, yeah, I would say, 
you know, from the most part, we can affirm the historical reliability of the gospel. You know, we can know with a very high probability, you know, that there really was a person, Jesus of Nazareth, uh, who he really went around teaching and preaching Torah, you know, in Israel. Um, you know, as the creeds say, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Uh, he was, you know, crucified and died. And so all of those, all of those historical texts, I think, are for the most part uncontroversial. And I think they provide sufficient evidence. Um, you know, for them becomes theological claims, you know, that Jesus actually was raised from the dead, you know, by God, the Father, by the Holy Spirit. Uh, so I think the historical facts get us to the point then where you know, we, would, we would say faith or by theology, then we affirm the, kind of the rest of the narrative and the, and the ongoing portion of the narrative. Okay, I, I'm I'm really curious about sort of your sort of your epistemology, right? In terms of of why you you believe these things, you know, and you mentioned probability. Would you say that this sort of reflects like the rest of or how you believe things? Like you know, for example. Oh, there's a high probability that God exists. Therefore, I will believe in God. There's a high probability that Christianity is true. Therefore, I, I believe in Christianity. Is that how your knowledge claims work? Yeah. So, I mean, I think we can typically describe that in terms. Um, so, you know, the evidence for a hypothesis is something that raises the credibility or the probability of a hypothesis. Um, so again, as you know, we discover these historical facts, you know, that in turn, you know, reinforce the general reliability of you know, the gospel in the New Testament. So it becomes a cumulative case um, built on kind of this kind of Bayesian thinking. Well, okay. So w when it comes to the the being a Christian, I'd say that you you have to sort of have an understanding of. Or I guess a a, a Christian perspective on natural history, right? That of there being a creator, and and all the and all that stuff. So, can you talk about wh what what you believe in? You know, in terms of what ha really happened in ge in in Genesis and and all of that. Are you old Earth, young Earth, evolutionist? What are you, man? Yeah, so I would be described by most people as a theistic evolutionist. Um, I think, you know, the scientific consensus on several of these matters, you know, the age of the universe, you know, the origin of humans and, you know, disputes in the earth, um, I think that's all generally very reliable. And so I see no reason, you know, to kind of undercut those um, with theological claims, you know, saying I and I also can affirm in the same breath that the universe exists as it does by the will of God. So in that sense, I'm a creationist. Um, so largely, without getting into a lot of the details, you know, I tend to read Genesis as literature. And even in a more focused sense, it's folk literature. Um, which I, and there's no negative connotation to that. Um, you know, we use terms like mythology, folk. I think we tend to use this too disparagingly when they're religious descriptions of genre. Um, so the general sense of affirming the scientific consensus on one hand and then you know, using that to establish a reliable hermeneutic, then that reads Genesis within an appropriate genre. Kind of one reinforces the other, if that makes sense. Okay, so so you, do, you don't believe in the literal Adam and Eve and the serpent and the like a knowledge of good, a tree of knowledge of good and evil and all that stuff. It's sort of allegorical. You know, and to be perfectly honest, I'm at a kind of a point in my life where I can say I don't know. Um, you know, I've actually recently read um, Josh Swaminas's work, and I think there's a place where we can land in both, you know, from a scientific perspective, um, you know, genealogical Adam. It's not impossible. It's metaphysically possible that there was an Adam and Eve. Um, from then spring all of humans as we know them today, um, while simultaneously affirming that, you know, humans are themselves, um, you know, the result of a long evolutionary process. Um, it's something I'm personally wrestling with. Um, I don't think Christian theology falls apart if we determine with the high probability that there was no literal Adam and Eve. Um, I think there are ways to read this narrative and still affirm you know, the basic theological truth of what we would consider, you know, brokenness of humanity. You know, we don't need necessarily an Adam and Eve 
to establish that and then establish, you know, going on to, you know, what Jesus does to reconcile and rectify that. Um, so I'm kind of in this kind of this nebulous bigness personally, um, where I think both are possible. And, you know, I would kind of to use this terminology, I think we can kind of reach a peaceful place where we can just have this conversation without necessarily tearing you know, the other down. What about a global flood? Do you believe that? Uh, that I would say um, the flood as described in the Bible couldn't be global because the Bible has no concept of a globe. Um, you know, I'm pretty firm in my belief that, you know, the various descriptions in Scripture regarding, you know, the earth or general cosmology, general cosmogony, these are these are probably full police. You know, they're contemporaneous with, um, you know, other ancient areas and beliefs. So, you know, we, the goal should not be to try to mine scripture for these types of specifics of what we would call scientific questions and answers. Um, I, I do think there is you know, some sort of ancient shared tradition, you know, and there's, you know, some scientific evidence of, you know, massive flooding events, you know, Levant and, you know, and the ancient areas that maybe the basis for some of that. But I think largely um, scripture is describing things in folk terms to kind of provide that theological conclusion. All right. Uh, but how, one last question about sort of the Old Testament. What about like Moses and all the miracles that have happened in in the Old Testament? Would you say that those are accurate and actually did happen? Yeah, I think scripture is generally reliable when it wants to describe, you know, God intervening or working into the universe, you know. Um, it may not be exactly how we've traditionally been raised to think of it, uh, but, you know, like God gives Israel and, you know, the people out of Egypt, you know, I think there's reasons to affirm that if we're going to put this in scientific terms, we're going to try to kind of pin it down, you know, in a more um, outside of the narrative sense, you know, we're trying to mine it for these details um i think we can generally that. all right all right okay um so let, let's get down to um to this to the to salvation for a second right um what is what does it mean to be saved be, you know because if you're holding a monist view it's not really you're not really trying to save a soul or anything but you're saving your whole being, right? And, it's, and, when, and well, not you're you're not saving yourself, but it's uh, you know, through Christ Jesus and by faith alone, right? And grace. Right. So you know, coming from a generally Protestant background, you know, we've kind of inherited this tradition that wants to describe salvation largely in legal terms. Uh, so we could say, you know, that salvation is the reconciliation of God and man. Um, you know, by means of like a legal transaction, for example, you know, so if I'm, you know, I have a sin debt and the work of Christ didn't work to resolve that sin debt, that the sense of what salvation is, it's the reconciliation of God and man, you know, where the sin debt separated us, you know, God through Christ worked to reconcile that. So in a sense, it, you know, it doesn't really matter my anthropology is if I have an immaterial or not, you know, if I'm reconciled to God through the work of Christ, then that's ultimately what matters. Okay, but here's the thing though right like um the, the, what what's what's ha what's happened is that the son of god you know the a, a person in the trinity he ca he came down this earth in the form of a human so like taking the both natures right divine and, and human so why was it necessary for the, this the son of god to to live like a human being and to suffer on the cross and die, and why did he have to be resurrected? Like, why was this necessary for the reconciliation? Um, I think some of that will go back to understanding kind of core concept in Torah or in the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, again, kind of the accumulation of sin debt, uh, the accumulation of what we call like ritual impurity. Um, so there's, it's very multifaceted. You know, and even as these ideas kind of explored and developed later on in church history for the patristics and others, you know, it continues to be multifaceted. So I don't think we can put our finger on one thing and say, that's it. That's why Jesus had to die. Um, you know, going back to the Hebrew scriptures, you know, we can see, you know, ideas developing about, you know, the shedding of blood, um, working to, you know, to bring some type of reconciliation or to establish, you know, a form of payment. I mean, I think there's lots of, to explore that we you know that Christian philosophers and theologians have 
you know, done over the centuries. Um, so I think we have, again, have a multifaceted model that I would kind of build, knowing, you know, this doesn't exactly answer your question, but I would think I would want to avoid a sense of we have to say, you know, it's this one thing or this thing only that why Jesus had to die. Well, I, I think it's very, you know, um, you have to be very clear on 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 what you believe on this right like for example yeah you, you can believe you if it's good that you believe that christ is part of the trinity and you're affirming sort of the the basic uh understanding but when it comes to how the atonement works and and like what role it requires of us as well right for like for example um do you believe that mankind sort of plays a part in and how this atonement is to work? Um, in the most basic sense, I would say no. Um, because like in broad terms, you know, we talk of atonement, you know, in the sense of God through Christ doing something that we cannot do, you know, without having to know the specifics of what is done. Um, you know, we can still say, you know, with confidence that, you know, God through Christ works as an intermediary on behalf of kind of, you know, the classic images you know, of the cross being this cult. Um, in some sense, that's probably oversimplified, but we can still say, you know, if this is a one-way transaction, you know, of, you know, God is the only one who can cross the chasm in a sense to bring humans over. Um, you know, at that point, whether, you know, we would talk about monogism or synergism, um, I'm again kind of in a place in my own, you know, faith and belief where it's, you know, it's kind of nebulous and I can see arguments for both. And I really haven't landed where I would consider on the satisfactory way, but I think there's a room for kind of both, both types of belief, if it makes sense. Yeah. And what, what I've noticed from, from all that you said is that, uh, yeah, you affirm that uh, God, you affirm Christianity, but you you're sort of sticking to this uh you know this monism and then you, when it comes to the specific details of how your theology or what you, you believe in theology you, you you sort of go for the ambiguous route and say that that there are many possible models to this that yeah and you know that's how humans in general you know we all approach the world you know Nobody has access to all information in all places. So what every human does at some degree is build a model of reality. You know, that's no different from you know, from a scientific perspective again or from a theological perspective. You know, nobody has direct access to the divine nature. Nobody has access to the deepest secrets of the universe. So everyone in some sense builds a model of how the reality works. And it's always in it. Wait, so is, so is it the case that you hold this... Uh... Um, view of uh, the anthropomorphic view of monism because you really you can't really prove that there is this immaterial part of um, of a human being but to be a monist it's simply that you 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 only affirm what you can prove for now but you're not really eliminating the possibility that there might be a immaterial part of a human being but you just don't know exactly Uh, i would argue that we don't have enough evidence um, that would affirm or establish the necessity of an immaterial soul in that sense. Um, so I tend to easily kind of lean towards, um, I guess you could call it a kind of a minimalism, you know, unless I feel really compelled to believe some specific proposition, whether it's theological or not. Um, you know, if I don't have what I feel is sufficient evidence, then I will typically kind of lean more towards minimalism and say, well, it's probably just the simplest form of that, almost in sense of if you were thinking about planet outcomes earlier. Yeah, yeah. You, wow, you're really convincing me, sorta here. <laughs> I might, I might actually consider this monism thing. I, I, you know, because I grew up in a in a very conservative Baptist church, so uh, it's very, very strict on what doctrines to believe. But I, I myself, you know, I, I try to judge it for myself and let, let the Holy Spirit speak to me about it. And yeah, when it comes to this, okay, like how, you know, do you, what do you believe is the is the function or the role of the Holy Spirit in in the atonement? And, you know, and how, and you know, you know he, there are many, uh, verses in the Bible that that reveal how he he functions and how he he 
you know, he, he sort of fulfills God's will on earth. So how? Yeah. Um, so I think there's a lot of, um, you know, we can see descriptions, you know, of the spirit, especially in the New Testament, you know, connecting of sin, uh, you know, of what Calvinist tradition kind of describe as the application of the atonement. Um, I think that's broadly true. Um, so, you know, even as you know, the spirit kind of leads us into recognizing, you know, our own sinfulness and, you know, the need for reconciliation through our faith, you know, applies the atonement of Christ to individuals. I think that's primarily the role that we see in the spirit. That's really interesting. All right. But, but here's the thing, though, you know, when you say that, okay, you know, the, this reality of ours, right? His, this mo- and humanity being a monist, uh, you know, being, then when it, so where is, what is sin, right? Where is it? Where, where does its essence lie when you say that, oh, I'm a sinful human being and deserve uh, punishment or God's justice? What is it? Yeah, so um, I think we have a couple different approaches that we can probably apply to this. Um, again, the first being sort of the legal sense, you know, of, you know, you think of a ledger and a checkbook, maybe, um, where sin, even when the balance goes the wrong way. Um, of course, you know, humans accumulate this for our lifetimes. Um, but I would probably lean more towards an Augustinian view and saying that, you know, that sin is not a substance, you know, it's a privation. You know, it's not a thing. Um, although there are some arguments, you know, like from the apocalyptic golf school, you know, where sin is treated kind of, you know, and that's a fascinating subject. It's probably a little bit out of the scope of this conversation. Um, where we could see sin as sort of this active cosmic force. Um, you know, again, it's most things where I'm still kind of reading and studying. Um, but for the most part, I would probably land on that Augustinian view of, you know, being a privation of the good. Um, you know, as Thomas or Aquinas would put it, you know, the summum bonum, you know, we fall short of that summum bonum. Yeah. Okay. So the, the, it's sort of, are you, you're sort of saying like, um, sin is sort of a gaping hole, like the absence of good. Yes. I think that, yeah, I think that's a succinct way to put it. Okay. So when it comes to that, I want to ask, um, so, you know, because if human beings, right, we are this, this, uh, know this intelligent creature that god created and we we do things that are sinful which are simply actions that are you know absent of goodness right or god's goodness and so when it so it and then what what happens is that we 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 are offered christ's uh atonement right and what so what is going to what's the phenomenon here that's happening like uh am i am i am i do i believe in christ this in you know in a faith kind of way and just trusting him and then that that and trusting that his salvation that him saving me is going to transform me into this person that's actually going to do good you know like positive good instead of the absence of good? Yeah, so it sounds like you're describing, you know, in what the first sense kind of you know, what happens at the point of justification. Um, and again, you know, as, you know, someone who largely grew up in the Protestant tradition, you know, I would say, you know, that's primarily a legal transaction. Um, but as someone who also read a lot of into right, you know, I think there's room for nuance that we've missed over the centuries. Um, so I want to get too deep into that. But basically, you know, if point of justification is where we join this family, um, you know, where we begin to participate in the narrative. Um, so, you know, faith in that sense is kind of the key that unlocks that door where they walk through to begin that participation. Um, and then, you know, of course, in the second half of that, then traditionally would be the sanctification process where then, you know, through the work of the Spirit, you know, we find ourselves becoming more and more like Jesus and how we behave and how we think and how we interact with others and, you know, even you know how we build just societies and ideas like that so okay okay then i want to ask you about like you know the, um, the what is the best moral system here and i and it's because and thus you're presupposing christianity so i'd say like um 
what does it mean to be a really a good Christian? You know, to live the Christian life and way. You know, um, I think that would fall in line with, you know, outside of the redemptive narrative of Scripture. I think there's an equally powerful and parallel narrative, um, you know, kind of we would call it the wisdom tradition. Uh, and, you know, in Hebrew, we would call that hokmah. Um, I, I think that ties it beautifully with the redemptive narrative uh, because, you know, Christianity and even broader sense, you know, Second Temple Judaism, all these religions that kind of sprang out of the same era, you know, everyone's goal is the pursuit of wisdom. And so as Christians, I would say, you know, again, through the Spirit, applying the atonement of Christ and beginning to change this, the goal then would be to kind of follow in those steps of that tradition. And again, you know, that involves how humans behave around other humans, you know, how we build just families, how we build just societies. You know, and so I think cumulatively in that direction, you know, what we would call the eschatological goal then would be the unification of God and man to create, like we would call it, the perfect just society, or as Augustine would call it, the city of God. So it, so on, a, on an individual level, what is the, you know, I guess, the, what is the quest as a Christian? You know, let's say that I'm just a normal young Christian who just recently arrived at my faith in Christ what would be the mindset that are the the goal po- the goals in my christian life that i should pursue like uh, because it, it, if you're holding sort of monist view right i don't really have a, like an immaterial part or you don't believe that yet but it, may, it might be but what's what, what you do understand is that um in terms of sin you have to stop sinning right and actually do positive good in your life so what 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 is does it mean to be a christian on the in an individual yeah. level so in kind of in the most basic terms i would say it comes um the forming of a pattern of behavior um and again, that you know that doesn't depend on any immaterial part of me to do that. Um, behavior is behavior, and if the goal of the Christian life is to over time and more and more and through work and the intervention of the Spirit, we talk about conforming to a pattern of behavior established by Jesus, you know, and that's manifested in you know ideas like compassion and forgiveness and justice, you know, all these kind of these big ideas that we float around, you know, the goal of that and again I would say that falls under the kind of establishment patterns of behavior. Patterns of behavior, that's it's how how do you what do you mean by patterns of behavior? It's what kind of patterns of behavior? Can you be more specific? Yeah. So, you know, just through like basic compassion and forgiveness when somebody wrongs me, um, you know, I seek to forgive, I seek to reconcile. Uh, when when there was somebody around me who has less means than I am, you know, I give to them, you know, compassion towards them, I adjust it towards them. You know, that's like a major theme of like the Epistle of James, for example, is, you know, the eschewing of things that divide us, you know, things like wealth, and we kind of turn those ideas on their head, and we live compassionately, you know, we, we give abundantly as God gave abundantly. Um, you know, we were reconciled with your wrongness. Um, kind of the basic pattern that you can receive Jesus in, in the gospel. So basically what you're saying is like, what it means to be a Christian is just just to be a good human being. That's basically it. I would say that it's, you know, the goal is to be a good human being empowered by the Spirit. That's kind of where the uniqueness of Christianity comes in is saying, you know, this... You know, not only are we called to be good people, people of God, but we can only do so empowered by the Spirit, you know, through the application of the life of Christ in our lives. Okay, I want to, I guess, like, um, ask you specifically about the polit- political system then uh, that the, the you, you hold to, because if you, okay, if you believe all of this, right, then, and in, in this sense, you know, uh, would an atheist, like, uh, society actually be be considered like you know good as you know in a, in a christian in how you define good in christianity because if- i i would yeah i would say theoretically you know we could see it establishing a pattern of goodness um you know but as a christian you know i would say to kind of reach that goal you know everyone's pointing to the same goal um, but in that sense, you know, I'm saying, hey, we need the Spirit of God, you know, if, if the goal of that is to come full circle and reconcile with God, you know, of course, it requires participating in that narrative with God. So if God's not in that narrative, um, I think you can still be pointing in the right direction. 
uh, but you may be missing kind of that fun if you need to get over. So what you're saying is like um, we the we as human beings, right, as a human uh, civilization, are the the best thing that we could do is to be just re- really good human beings, right? But as a we have to sort of add the Holy Spirit or, or God into the narrative of this. Yes, and that kind of goes back, um, you know, I'm trying to think of you know, like First Corinthians 15 or, you know, these kind of these pictures we have in the New Testament of, you know, the necessity of the Spirit. So I don't want to undersell that, you know. I mean, we can talk about patterns of behavior, but it's the Spirit that kind of fuels that behavior. Um, well, um Daniel, I want to ask you one last question, man, because this has been really been really good for me. Actually, I learned so much. Yeah, and and I I really you know I guess coming from my background, I I I would be you know used used to be very dismissive of of p of you know theologies that were not similar to mine but um, I guess uh th- this podcast has really opened my mind and you know and how trying to understand like why people believe what they believe in and um I want to ask you one class question so what would you tell someone you know who who sort of disagrees with how you you form your belief because you know it it's not really the Protestant the mainstream Protestant, you know, evangelical uh, world worldview. It's how would you talk to them about this? I think it would start from the standpoint of what we call epistemic humility. You know, knowing that you know everybody operates with human information. You know how we perceive the world, how we describe the world, how we interact with others, and we kind of consolidate all this. You know, we build models of reality given our limitedness. And so, you know, if I'm going to compare my model of reality and my incorporation of my Christian faith with perhaps maybe my Jewish friend, my Jewish neighbor, my secular friend, my secular neighbor, you know, how we can, you know, with humility and, you know, a sense of trying to understand how we can compare these models and see where we disagree, where we agree, what information I'm lacking, what information someone else may be lacking. So, again, from, from that standpoint of humility, of trying to understand where we come from and how we build these models of reality. That's uh, it's been really awesome talking to you, Daniel. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, I really hope that we could you could come on. Maybe I I'm I'm interested. I'm thinking of like a debate with, with with you and someone that <laughs> has a different idea of theology. It's I, I, I hmm. It's just really awesome. Okay, man. Thank you so much. Thank you. My pleasure. So that's the end of it. Thanks for tuning in, guys. This is your host, Elmo Ador Jr. And thank you for listening in. And please subscribe. Please follow us on Facebook. Please, please follow this. Please. Thanks. We're moving in a new direction. Moving forward. And moving beyond smoking. We are Altria. And our companies are leading the way in moving adult smokers away from cigarettes by taking action to transition millions toward potentially less harmful choices as we move from being known as a tobacco company to being recognized as a tobacco harm reduction company. Altria is moving beyond smoking. Find out how at Altria.com. Holidays are here, and so is fashionable fitness. Gift yourself a Samsung Galaxy Z Flip 3 5G, a phone that folds in half to literally stand on its own. Pair it with the Galaxy Watch 4 for ultimate wellness and wow factor. Check health stats, flex personal records. Over 90 activities can be tracked, like biking, swimming, golfing, and more. Invest in yourself with tech made to crush goals. Holidays open up with Galaxy. Shop it all at Samsung.com. 5G connection and availability may vary. Check with carrier. Products sold separately.